Hello, good afternoon. Uh, you are listening to the podcast of the Budapest City Archives in cooperation with the Goethe Institute in Budapest and the CU Podcast Library. My name is Andrea Petter, a professor at Central European University Vienna, fellow at the Central European University Democracy Institute Budapest, and at the moment a research fellow at the University of Bielefeld, CIF, the Central for Interdisciplinary Forschung, Global Contestations of Gender Rights. A resolution was adopted by the General Assembly of the Budapest capital with a majority of the opposition to the governing Fidesz party in January 2020 about erecting the monument to women raped in war in 2022 with an international bid and discussed by an international jury. This process will involve broad historical and artistic expertise and promises a transparent process involving a public debate. To prepare this process with the financial support of the Goethe Institute Budapest, members of the standing committee preparing the monument, interviewing internationally known scholars about relevant issues, which might be helpful for those preparing a bid for erecting this monument uh, to women raped in war. Today, we will be talking to about forgetting with Alaide Asman. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Hi, Andrea. I'm happy to see you. Thank you. Some word. Alaide Asman really doesn't need uh, any introduction still. Uh, Alaide Asman was born in 1947, and she's an emeritus professor of English and cultural studies. She taught English and general literary studies at the University of Constance and took part in fellowship programs at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Berlin at the A.B. Warburg House in Hamburg. She worked as a guest professor at the universities of Rice, Princeton, Yale, Chicago, and Vienna. Her publications include uh, in Dickich der Zeichen, in the Labyrinth of Science in 2015, Der lange Schatten der Vergangenheit, The Long Shadow of the Past, 2014, Des neue Unbehangen an der Erinnerungskultur, uh, The new, uh, new Unease Towards the Culture of the Remembrance, 2013, Is die Zeit aus den Fugen, Aufstieg und Niedergang des uh, Zeitregimes der Moderne, as time lost its equilibrium, rise and fall of the time regime in modernity, 2013, Erinnerungsräume, Formen und Wandlungen des kulturellen Gedächtnisses, Spaces of Remembrance, Forms and Changes in Cultural Memory, 2011. Today we are discussing two topics which are important for this monument, the importance of memory in transformative politics, and the forms of forgetting in relation to the planned monuments of victims of war uh, time rape in Budapest. So let's start with understanding complexities of memory and then continue with forgetting. You claim in your work that memory can play a key role in processes of change and transition because it is itself flexible and has a transformative quality. So what are, methodological, what are the methodological premises of working with memories of dark events. Okay, thank you um, for this introductory question. Well, um, you're absolutely right. Memory is flexible. Um, in this sense, it is not a photo of the events that happened in the past. Um, it is much more of a coping mechanism with dealing with events in the past. This means that it is always a position taking, 
Um, and this includes an emotional response and also a critical judgment. Um, for this reason, uh, it is important that is, it happens always in a different time frame and also in a different frame of values. And um, from which the one from the one uh, that it, in which it originally occurred. So that means that memory, in fact, um, is a form of retrospection, um, and one could also say retroactive uh, reflection. Um, therefore, it can have an impact on the past in the present. Thank you. This is really important because this planned monument has got this transformative potential, as the. Uh, topic of wartime rape, rape has been tabooized for so long. So memory is not only susceptible to changes, it itself a powerful agent of change. Can you give examples about tragic, dramatic, dark events being memorialized and how these memorialization processes themselves become agents of change? When we talk about memory as an agent of change, I think I have used the phrase quite often also in a book on political memory and its in transition processes. We, of course, have to acknowledge that there is something happening here. First of all, the grammar of social and political memory has to change. It has to accept also dark events and not gloss over them or cover them up in silence or <clears throat> uh, oppose these possible testimonies. In other ways, it is not the memory itself that can introduce this change. It is always a social or political frame that has to be built up in a society. And an example how this can come about is perhaps Germany itself, in which a country in which it took West Germany in this case, um, five decades before this memory eventually had a chance to emerge. Um, and to break through uh, eventually and, and become part of uh, social, uh, socially accepted and political memory. And this was an event that um, happened um, bottom up. It was not a top down, down process. So I think re uh, building this uh, frame is a very important process. It depends on democratic societies that create a debate about it. And it is the debate actually that can introduce a new frame. In your work, you are underlining that it is not possible uh, to neatly separate remembering and forgetting. Why is that so? And can you give an example? You asked me for examples. I would also like to give a brief example for the transition of the memory, and that would be the comfort um, woman. Um, the comfort women, the Korean and Chinese comfort women that were um, <clears throat> abused in um, forced prostitution by Japanese soldiers in the Second World War. So by now, um, they have become almost something like a global icon. There are statues all over the world for them, um, newly risen. But in the country of the perpetrators, there is still a total lack of response to this historic event. So this is a very uneven uh, situation. And it is something that is, again, always <clears throat> built on the frames um, in the specific country. And the question whether it can pierce uh, the silence and become, in a way, a new um, hegemonic memory in order to support these 
testimonies. Thank you for bringing in this example because we also know that there is this big debate now in Berlin uh, about this monument where uh, uh, the different political forces in Germany are actually you know, conflicting uh, uh, about the future of this monument. Exactly, and this is also why you can see in this example how remembering in, and forgetting interact. The more one group starts to remember, the more the other one will rise, or contrary one will rise and um, try to oppose it. It is really something that is happening at the same uh, same time, and that makes it politically so controversial and also important. Uh, In your work, you are also analyzing the process, how counter memory becomes a normative memory. Can you again give an example about this uh, about regarding this process? Actually, when I referred just referred to the um, very slow emergence of the uh, Holocaust memory in in uh, Germany, I think this was a kind of counter memory because it was there from the start, and everybody <clears throat> who says, "Well, it was there." Um, um, cannot, as a historian does, uh, who on, always refers to sources, say it was there altogether. It was never there altogether. There were just very isolated enclaves of this memory, uh, which had a very hard time to uh, get heard. Because for public memory um, or social memory to be heard, it always needs those who accept it, take it take it on and listen. And the testimonies were glossed over, they were silenced. And it took really until the 1990s, which is called the uh, decade of the uh, of testimonies or the decade of the witness by Annette Bivioka, uh, until these testimonies were finally heard and uh, changed actually also the uh, political climate and also the values of um, the national frame of Germany after the reunification. You, you pointed out that memory is always changing. So why is that important that memory can change private to public, unofficial to official, normative to counter memory, local to global, national to transnational? So why is this list relevant for uh, our today's uh, uh, memory projects and especially for this particular project of uh, the city of Budapest? I think you can add another um, another pair to your to your list, which is already impressive, and that is male and female perspectives. Um, I recall uh, Ruth Klüger and her book uh, "Survival: um, Surviving Auschwitz Weiterleben." Um, keep on living is is the title in German, and she describes situations in even in conversations in the United States with her husband, who is a historian and a GI of the American army. Uh, So uh, part of the allies, and she was part of those who suffered in various concentration camps in Eastern Europe. And when they had this conversation, she immediately knew she had no place in this uh, 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 conversation. There was not an established language for her experience to utter at all. Of course, this was an extreme experience, but every um, female point of view of the experience of war is is dramatically different from those of the male participation. And therefore it took a long time to develop this language and to um, also create this empathic uh, point of view to include that into our way of speaking, talking and um, uh, yeah, creating a new resonance for for this experience as well. So this was the 
hopeful and positive part of the interview, which is which has been uh, exploring the possibilities of uh, and the opportunities of memory and the fluidity and the interactions of different memories. Now let's move to the move to the topic of forgetting. Uh, so the basis of this discussion will be your uh, book published by the Wallstein Verlag in 2016, The Different Forms of Forgetting. The title is Forms of Forgetting. And in your book, you are claiming that forgetting is a filter, as a weapon, and as a prerequisite is for creation of new things. Can you explain this to the listeners as this planned monument is fighting against forgetting the rapes committed by soldiers and civilians during wartime? Yes, indeed. I thought there are really very different uh, kinds of forgetting. This is I'm always interested in sorting out things that are complicated and try to create also an intellectual tool to dealing with them. So thank you for picking this up and take it, bringing it uh, into our uh, conversation. I think um, one possibility of forgetting is just to create a filter. We always have too much information. We need to focus. And this is also a, a situation that memory and attention span are in a way connected. That could be a more neutral function. But then uh, there is the um, a positive possibility to use it as a tool, use it as a requisite or whatever, a tool uh, to, to do something uh, to improve uh, the, the state uh, of the society and also the state of, of uh, those who have suffered uh, from the past. And um, But a third possibility is that of using it as a weapon. And here the age-old damnatio memoriae, for instance, is an example. It is um, uh, silencing a person and uh, after after it's uh, his or her death is a way of of a, of a second death. It's really uh, erasing, blotting out the name because the name that lives on is also part of that person's identity, and therefore it is a very severe uh, attack uh, that can be done. Very violent attack with with uh, forgetting, and also another way is to suppress uh, the testimony of the other side. That is the defensive form of of forgetting, and it is usually used in after regime changes. The <clears throat> party that had reigned um, tries to get rid of all the sources and uh, <clears throat> traces, uh, so it can no longer be held responsible afterwards. And this happened, for instance, in South uh, Africa after apartheid or in um, East Germany um, after <clears throat> the re reunification with the Stasi documents, which luckily were preserved. In this book, uh, The Forms of Forgetting, you examine collective forms of forgetting in social, political, and cultural contexts, culminating in the question of the impossibility of forgetting on the internet. How does that change the dynamics of forgetting? The internet uh, has totally changed um, the situation of remembering and forgetting. Because uh, these frames that we talked about, these social and political frames, are not very active in this uh, space. Uh, anybody can enter it and uh, introduce something on his or her own. So we have a flourishing, we could argue, grassroots memory. Everybody puts in what he or she thinks fit and uh, is, is really attached to. But the outcome is not that positive at all because it is a very chaotic space and um, it is ungrouped. <laughs> um, and therefore, I think um, what happens is uh, right now that it is also a source, a very dangerous source for people 
who just look for information that they already corroborate, that they uh, believe in, that they confirm, and therefore they stay totally <coughs> in a, a, close, a close proximity with those opinions that they already share. So it is not an educational source. It, it, it could be, but it is not used as, that, as, as such, and therefore it has really complicated uh, the general um, memorial situation because now you, you can uh, lobby in, in various ways and also undermine uh, social consensus, which uh, is uh, actually happening right now in Europe in, in many ways uh, on the part of the right, right uh, reactionary movements. Uh, so in this book, you outline seven different forms of forgetting. Uh, as you said, you like making things complicated and <laughs> explain uh, very difficult processes in a kind of uh, uh, intellectual uh, way. The first three, you claim that are morally neutral forms, mm -hmm. like automatic, preservative, and selective forgetting. Can you ex explain these terms and give some examples? Again, I think um, memory has a lot to do with attention. And attention is something that is a pre-given, an anthropological given. Um, we need attention to be able to focus. And the space of memory, as I like to put it in a very uh, really um, easy and uh, simple way, is that it does not afford a lot of space. Uh, it is itself a theater in which battles are fought and uh, it, is, it is really controlled by emotions. Mm, uh, not only attention span, but also emotions, because these emotions try to keep this space tidy and not to have things intrude that are conflicting with the self-image of the person. And this becomes really important once we think about uh, collective self-images of, of uh, groups, nations, societies. And if, um, if then there is a political support to keep this space uh, groomed and tidy and uh, sort of void of everything that could um, uh, conflict or be in uh, opposition to that uh, opinion, um, it will become censored very, very, very quickly, either by uh, continuous um, social habits, like in the United States, where it's difficult to bring in new uh, aspects of the past, or by top-down uh, legislation, as happens in some Eastern European countries. So it is really a very... <clears throat> uh, dramatic and dynamic space, and it is important to distinguish these uh, three different forms of forgetting. Then you define two darker forms of forgetting, uh, repressive and defensive. Uh, repressive forgetting is what you call memory side or killing of the memory of persons or groups and is inflicted upon others. Defensive forgetting is the destruction of evidence to protect perpetrators. Can you give again examples to these two dark forms of forgetting? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, again, uh, I recall a very ancient Egyptian saying, it says, uh, a man, usually in ancient Egypt, it's a man who lives whose name is being named, uh, who's, who's being, whose name is being called um, or brought up in conversation. So as long as he's named, he's still among them people who live. So damnatio in memoriae, as I said, is a, is a very severe uh, crime. 
already in ancient Egypt. But this is something that has been politically used uh, very often in connection with genocides. So the Armenian genocide uh, was also a way of silencing uh, voices and of uh, really opposing any kind of um, <clears throat> testimonials who tried to emerge after the, um, the event. And Hitler, in 1939, shortly before he started his um, <clears throat> invasion into Poland, uh, in, August, uh, in August said, who today still speaks of the Armenians? So this is the dream of the perpetrators to uh, keep everything covered and to have silence reign. And uh, therefore, it's a very dark side to, to promote silence by uh, destroying testimonies. And um, um, the other way, actually, uh, yeah, this, uh, the, the examples of South America, uh, South Africa and, and the GDR uh, are important here. The Stasi documents actually survived only because some very courageous um, protesters of the revolution entered a hunger strike. Otherwise, West and Eastern uh, German politicians would have destroyed the whole set of Stasi documents. That is the dark side of forgetting. Uh, in your book, you concluded on a lighter note, defining the constructive and therapeutic forms of forgetting. To constructively forget, a person moves forward without observing the past and with a clear consciousness. Do you think that it is all possible? And what is the role of historical research in that process? Well, you, you, you picked a very important point. When I say this is positive or constructive, I was not necessarily endorsing it. But what I wanted to show is that it was the normal and normative form of dealing with the past in modernist Western societies. And mind you, whether East or West, um, uh, West uh, Europe. For instance, the first stanza uh, of the national anthem of the GDR started with the words Auferstanden aus Ruinen und der Zukunft zugewandt. This means, risen from the rubbles of ruins, we are now addressing the future, a bright future. So this was this promise uh, of the Western, as I call it, Western time regime of modernity. You had, that this was the idea of modernism altogether. You had to erase the past in order to create something new and to gain the future. And this is something that has totally changed, I think, with a new memory paradigm. We are now more sensitive to uh, <clears throat> not letting the past go because this is still a resource for some, if not for all, um, who want to um, just um, go ahead into a future that we no longer really have access to. So... Um, I think um, uh, it is creative uh, in the sense of we, you, create, you forget the past in order to do something new, but it is not necessary any longer our um, orientation, but it used to be a central uh, Western, Western perspective. And um, the other way, the, the lighter way, the therapeutic way is to ease the burden of the past. Those who cannot um, make the past go away and still should not be blocked by it, but acknowledged its its weight and do not refute it, but accept it in a way, um, they also can lighten this burden. And this is the therapeutic uh, version that Freud also, I think, had in mind, although he wanted to make memory disappear altogether, uh, the, more or less. But I, I think forming a more inclusive uh, memory of it uh, is also a form of 
um, lightening uh, this this burden. Therefore, I call it therapeutic. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And I hope that those who are considering to uh, submit a bit for this uh, monument will uh, get lots of inspiration from our uh, discussion. The recording will be available at the CU Podcast Library, the website of the Goethe Institute in Budapest, and the web page of the project www.lhalgatva.hu. Thanks again uh, for the discussion. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think your project can really do a lot um, as a therapeutic project for the society, not just for individuals. So good luck with it. And thank you for our conversation. Thank you. Thanks a lot.